KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, show all about land, policy, and politics. Today the program, we have on Robert Fairbanks of University of Texas Arlington, focusing on urban history. He's the author of Making Better Citizens, Housing Reform and the Community Development Strategy in Cincinnati, 1890-1960, originally published in 1988. A bit of an older book, but we picked it up for uh, several reasons. It's a fascinating survey of basically a hundred years of what you might want to call the anti-slum movement and the different strategies and ideology it picked up over these decades. A lot of focus on the details of land acquisition, revenue streams, and much more. Featuring the early movement of housing reformers to ameliorate the problems of the slums, leading up to the large-scale urban renewal and raising of the West End in Cincinnati. Uh, this episode isn't really focusing on the destruction of the West End. I think that would uh, that'll be picked up some other time, but rather tries to piece apart the politics and ideology that led to this. But you'll hear that as uh, we just get into it. So, without further ado, let's uh, just jump into the interview. So, uh, so Robert, I uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. This was always it's always fun to be able to talk about a, a book that I've written. This one it's been a while, so it will be fun to. It gives me a different perspective on the book, and I decided it's not that bad of a book after all. So well, that's good. <laughs> I'm curious about your changing thoughts. Uh, but yeah, before we go more into kind of introducing you in the book broadly, kind of curious, like what exactly was the chain that brought the Cincinnati uh, book about housing reform? Uh, onto under your radar. So uh, yeah, well, what what was the story behind that? Well, I've always been uh, interested in housing issues. Um, I took an MA master's degree at Indiana State and worked with Ed Spann, who was, uh, I like to think that Larry Bird and I came to Indiana State at the same time, but uh, he, had, he was much more successful than I was. But anyways, uh, but I got very interested in, in, planning and housing and things like that. And then when I went to Cincinnati, I went to specifically to work with Zane Miller, who's the, one of the top urban historians. I went there because of him. Although he had just written a book on Boss Cox of Cincinnati. It was more politics than anything else. But uh, he, remind, he told me that there were some interesting uh, sources that were in the archives there. And he thought, you know, that might not be a bad area to write your dissertation. And so I said, okay, I'll look at that and see, maybe do a paper and just see what's there. And it was just like having a a gold, a chest full of gold in terms of there's a lot of detail, a lot of stuff that you just don't get anywhere else. And my original notion was just to kind of do kind of history of uh, housing reform. Uh, at that time, there were just a couple of books that were really fairly well known in the academic world: uh, Roy Luboff's book, uh, Phil Pott's book, uh, and a little later, uh, Arnie Hirsch did a book. But it was still a, a field that was kind of just opening up uh, to more attention. And uh, actually, Jack ba- Bauman also did a book on Philadelphia. And so, I was just interested in the Cincinnati experience. Uh, Cincinnati, of course, was unique. In a lot of ways, it had uh, one of the worst housing problems in the country, probably in terms of congestion. It was often viewed as the second most congested city just after New York City because of the geography of the city and the basin was always full of uh, people and industry and things like that. So that that got me interested. And I was just 
basically kind of going to, you know, I thought, okay, Cincinnati is a good case study. We can just look at some of this. And then I ended up realizing that what I was watching were some significant shifts in how the housing issue was defined. Uh, the early part was about tenement reform and the focus was on individual uh, who lived in the individual families and what the tenements did to them. And uh, the idea was we need to make things better for them uh, because they were not being able to um, find uh, what they needed to be successful. That is, uh, those who worked in the factories had little money, basically, and so they, they had to buy the least expensive housing that's available, and these were uh, a number of uh, tenements had been built. That is, the early tenements were basically old houses that were split into relatively three or four uh, rooms for families, and then they started building cheap tenements in the really late 19th century. And so I was interested with that development and thinking, okay, what's going to happen after that? And, and ultimately what, what I saw happening was a complete redefinition of what the housing problem was. The housing problem no longer was going to be something that's associated with just tenements, dirty tenements and dirty tenement livers, love, love, uh, live, people who lived there. But at the same time, it was going to, uh, the whole definition of what, bad housing was shifted significantly yeah i think and that's so, a great that's a great uh, launching off point to kind of talk about you know this what this book covers and you know as, as you said earlier uh, zane miller i feel very spoiled insofar as you know uh, i have a whole zane miller bookshelf and uh i think as far as the history of cincinnati and the evolution uh right. i think yeah cincinnati is not only a good example of a city but yeah as you said geographic constraints make it like other cities but maybe exaggerated to a, a bit and it also i think perhaps as a result led the way on many reform movements and this book uh, which again is making better citizens housing reform and the community development strategy in cincinnati 1890 to 1960 uh, it's a history of this movement it's a history of the ideology of the movement and also features, uh, you know, a, a lot of kind of insight into the political uh, landscapes that this was acting within. Uh, and I, I think it's probably worth just talking about maybe the structure of the book. Uh, it talks about different eras. It talks, the first era is, as you're saying, the classic urban slum. And it's worth saying this is a pre-car age. People are trapped right. in the basin. Exactly. Right. People are trapped in the basin, and, you know, this is the Jacob Reese age of, you know, it's just, you know, dire, dire overcrowding and poverty. Uh, oh. Then the section two is about, uh, you know, reformers, uh, you know, looking at not just, uh, I guess, ameliorating the tenements, but creating a community level design. Uh, oh. Part three. Part three is like uh, really about large-scale government intervention. This has to do with the localities and the federal government working together for public housing strategies and both the successes and shortcomings of these strategies. And four is about the dissolution of this whole strategy and basically the what you might call the modern era of uh, maybe futility, uh, but or at least the, the non-reform movement. Uh, but yeah, I think maybe uh, let's get back into the part you know, one, uh, yeah, very early 
you know, as it left the city boss era, uh, there like the, the the boss Cox era, you know, there wasn't really any active energy to fix anything. You know, people were used, employed, but the reformers were not really, uh, you know, steering it. And I suppose when you first saw the first reforms to make this better, places with dire congestion problems, tuberculosis, uh, there were model tenement laws. There were, you know, basically code enforcement. Uh, but and then this evolved into community strategy. But just yeah, speak a little bit about this. What this change meant? Okay. Well, the big problem was, of course, that the tenement problem itself—that is, the the people who were really at sort of the lower rung of the ladder had real issues. They didn't make enough money to find better housing. Uh, attempts to make the housing that they lived in safer or more effective place to live ran into all sorts of trouble. That is, you have efforts of trying to create tenement laws. Well, tenement laws would require tenement owners to improve their buildings. But of course, as they improved the buildings, they, they had to pay more money. And as a result, they had to charge more money. And so the people who were barely struggling to just get by had a real problem with that. And so you know, one of the one of the issues that uh, you know Lawrence Vey was very influential, basically, on on tenement house reform through legislation, and of course his his push in New York to improve them was was very important. And and he consulted with uh, the women's uh, women's organization, basically, who were very interested in kind of pursuing this. In fact, they were one of the leaders in in reform, basically, at this time, but. The, the issue was, what are we going to do? How are we going to help these people? And of course, the other traditional approach was, we're going to come up with, uh, build cheap housing for these people, model tenements. Uh, we would try to have investors invest a lot of money with the idea that they would get, they would not get outrageous amounts of feedback, but they would get their loans eventually paid out they were and very again, optimistic that out of the gate they could be self-sufficient get everyone exactly. a modest return and have this work at scale and right. uh, but but very clearly that just did not happen at all no no even even some of the successful uh you know the model housing uh program made some very good houses but and apartments but they weren't able to people couldn't afford them who needed them the most. And so this, this becomes a really serious issue. And, you know, the ultimate kind of the, the initial belief was, well, we're just going to have to buy, build better housing uh, for sort of people who have money to afford it with the idea that they would leave their homes and, you know, there'd be this filter down theory that was, uh, you know, kind of the, the only way they could approach this basically. And so there was still, and it was, of course, very problematic because certainly as, as you know, after World War One and even before World War One, you had large numbers of uh, folks coming into the city because of the industry, large numbers of blacks because we're near the south and a lot of blacks wanted to leave that, you know, that environment and come for jobs. And that created uh problems because they were viewed, of course, as second-class citizens and were not able to find the kind of housing that was available. And if they usually did find tenements even, they would have to pay more than the, the whites did. And so there was this 
this was a problem that really became, I think, a major you know problem in the early period of what the book's talking about. And then all of a sudden, you have a different discourse going on about the city and about the needs of the city. And all of a sudden, the discourse switches from the problems uh, of slum dwellers and how they are problematic in terms of what they are doing and how they're doing it. And they need help and guidance uh, that is better, you know, the better housing league basically would send in people to help the uh, working classes learn how to live in the city because a lot of these people were rural people. And the idea was one of the problems with the tenement issue was there are a lot of people from rural communities not knowing how to live in the city. I mean, Cincinnati was still a growing dynamic city and it was a different kind of world. And so one of the things that the women wanted to do and the Better Housing League tried to do was to teach women how to cope with life in in the city uh, through uh, sending other women in to teach them how to be good housekeepers and things like that. Okay. That, you know, that's an effort to try to deal with this slum problem, but within a relatively short period, the, the, the discourse and the emphasis changes from uh, sort of addressing the tenement population as the, the population to deal with. And it turns to uh, a broader issue about um, what bad housing is doing to the city and it becomes a very different kind of kind of focus. And the discourse changes uh, really by 1924, 25. It's a different kind of uh, sort of discussion that comes from, I think, the new views that the city is somehow organic. And, uh, you know, uh, the Chicago School of Sociology comes up with interesting notions about sort of the city as this organic entity and that if you have to deal with the problems of housing, it's one of the problems of the city. And in order to make the city stronger, you have to be able to address housing broader than you would with just the tenement reforms. And I think that's that becomes a different kind of way of looking at the housing problem. And it really emphasizes more the this is when you get the Merrimonts being the Merrimont being d- developed, and then uh, you know other model housing projects to show what's important. The, the other issue, the only other issue, is this whole notion of the definition is people need to develop a kind of an awareness, a civic awareness of uh, of the world they live in now. And there became they become a becomes a growing emphasis on the idea that um, what we have to do is create a culture uh, that creates community mindedness in ways that had not existed earlier. So I just wanted to uh, jump back to this this kind of point um, about the kind of t- model tenement legislation uh, that you mentioned, Lawrence VA. I actually found about about this book, Making Better Citizens, from. Uh, Ken Barr's review of the national movement to halt multifamily housing, hmm. which talks about the tenement codes and Lawrence VA and Cincinnati in particular about, you know, how 
there's middle class, very often middle class progressive reformers who are seeking to address the real concerns of sanitary uh, disease, overcrowding in these tenement conditions. But what was really interesting to me is how much um, how much ideology was infused on that. It wasn't a purely scientific effort. It was an effort to uh, and oftentimes uh, seen as kind of invading populations, non-white, non-Anglo populations, invading, as you said, like into Cincinnati uh, for industrialization. And the, the, the tenement was creating conditions that were not healthy and that they needed to spread these people out and into their own single family detached homes. And so I, I thought it was what was really interesting was you discussed. It's like so we they, they there was this movement, this kind of reformer movement to enact uh, local building code regulations. But um, the costs of that, obviously, they were successful in preventing the development of new tenement. But the the costs of that 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 Lawrence VA and and his fellow travelers never really accounted for was that suddenly people stopped building new housing for these um, in migrants uh, who are often working kind of industrial jobs. And so, you know, it's great that they created these minimums, but they never fought. They, they never. And Lawrence VA was actually opposed in oftentimes from public housing or public subsidized housing, they never took the second step of how do we create the conditions to build the housing that meets these minimums? Because in many respects, they didn't want to see multifamily housing built. They wanted to spread and disperse people rather than create kind of an urban environment. So I, I just thought that was kind of the interesting kind of corollary to the, the larger kind of code and um, housing minimum movement as it was applied to Cincinnati. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's right. And I, of course, African Americans had particularly serious challenges because moving them, you know, to housing land that's open for them was was going to create real serious trouble. And and you know, racism was well alive in the regular population, and, and in many ways in the housing community too. Uh, you know, Philpot, of course, made a very strong point about that, but. And, and Hirsch too, but I, I think that they overdo some of that stuff, and we can talk about that a little later. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. It's a bit out, out of scope, but you mentioned earlier uh, Zane Miller's book, Box Co- uh, Boss Cox's Cincinnati, and talking about basically the pre-car age of you had kind of the housing snobs, the hilltop dwellers on the edge of the city, you had the middle class uh, kind of border zone, and then you had the basin slum dwellers. And every generation, the hilltops would kind of go out a bit. And then there's always a fight. And the hilltops are very, like, explicit. They thought the slums were a risk to them. And they, you know, you know I'd say you could say, uh, you know, uncharitably, they wanted to pull up the ladder and kind of save it for themselves. Charitably, they wanted to create good living for everybody. And there was a, it's very interesting, at the time, the 1910s, it really seemed like the key was being unlocked. And the answer is, Cars and different transportation methods are going to open up a huge frontier, and all we need to do is basically create a uh, a new paradigm of basically sanitary, dignified living for everyone. And you know, Alfred Bettman is the uh, you know head of uh, a lot of this uh, this this planning movement, which is aligned with the Better Housing League of Cincinnati. He defended Euclid at the Supreme Court, which unified zoning. 
uh, or, or basically, uh, you know, made zoning valid under the Constitution. Uh, but what's very interesting is at this time, it's it they made sweeping movements. I think one of the, my jaw dropped when I saw they ban like they by zoning they made the entire basin non-residential even though 120,000 people live there which to me is just as far as just ignoring reality and just imposing your will on it i've never seen anything that dramatic it just uh, that just made my jaw drop yeah but but it you know that the notion was and part of it may be because of public transportation that industry was going to continue to grow in in the basin the basin was more fit in a lot of ways for, I mean, you know, there, you had flooding there, you had all sorts of, you know, problems there. The, lot, the worst housing because it was the oldest housing that was there. Oh, yeah. Every, every, everything from like 6th Street on down, every fall would flood. People would yeah. vacate their houses. They'd be, they had to clear out the mud and move back into their houses. I mean, no one should have to live that way, certainly. But, you know, there was this optimism still that by building more middle-class housing, or more affordable housing, at least that that you'd have this process in which those people would go to the better housing, and then the the people who were being losing their homes were going to be able to find housing that they could afford. Which again is another issue uh, because of the way the realtors work in here. And, uh, yeah, that is that is the big that is the one of the big questions. Like, oh, the middle class move to the suburbs is going to work. And then at the same time, for the black population, it is almost a hundred percent banned from moving to this frontier. I mean, that is the real. I mean, if there wasn't racism, I, I think this there would still be insurmountable challenges. But certainly, the racism is the instigating factor for all sorts of paradoxes here. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, Phil Potts' use of the term "the color line," you know, was was very real in that you just had a very hard time uh, if you were black finding any kind of decent housing because if there was decent housing you know in black areas even one would move out another african-american would come in and pay more than the previous guy did i mean the the the, the cost of living in cincinnati and based in cincinnati would increase significantly over a short period of time which made things even worse because then how do you do that how are you going to live well, you're going to have two families in, in an area that was built in an apartment that was for one. You're going to have to bring in extra people to live there and charge them a little bit of money and things like that. And so it, re- it really creates this, this challenge that uh, happens. And I think what you've, you've started already talking about, which is this new phase in terms of you know, the idea of we have to do more than just tenement reform, we have to think about the larger city, and we have to make plans, even though, again, the 25 plan did these ridiculous things about assuming, making these assumptions. But the idea was this, and this is, I think, one of the things that Zane really puts out a lot of his stuff about Cincinnati, there was this very clear awareness that the city was, you know, the city was viewed as some kind of organic entity, Mm -hmm. and that you get you get part of the city sick it's going to affect the rest of the sick you know it's the rest of the city you're going to have people who are maybe living in the up you know in the hilltops but where they're getting their help for their children or their cleaning help they're going to be people who live in in the basin and they're going to come with their diseases you know tuberculosis was a tremendously dangerous 
uh, disease at this time, which which had just a tremendous impact on the community. This this is where it seems to be like it, we start out at the tenement level, at the like the, at the the room level where it's talking about the disease, right? Of of these overcrowded conditions, and they don't have toilets or wash basins or privacy, and they have borders. And this, so you have that that room level concern about hygiene and then that starts to expand to the tenement level to the block level and then suddenly with the 25 plan it's the whole region right is where we are engaging in a hygienic planning project to prevent this the transmission of these diseases whether they be um you know whether they be real diseases or they be kind of more like coded racial or anti-immigrant kind of perception of disease it, it expands out to that entire region. And then, and so I think that that's kind of a interesting um, scalar kind of transition that happens. The other thing that I just wanted to, I thought was interesting here was like, obviously there's the Lawrence VA National Housing Association movement, which is Lawrence himself was opposed to more interventions into the market. But what, what was interesting to me is that in Cincinnati, at least with the, with the, um, with the Better Homes League, is that there was that almost like a transitional period, almost in the same way of like Edith Elmer Woods, where someone who supported some minimums, but also recognized the need to go beyond that and to provide higher quality housing, sometimes either through limited profit or some kind of public subsidy. And so that they supported these kind of either private or philanthropic efforts to to um to do that and so i i think it's almost like a transitioning period between that pure minimums movement and towards a kind of a more of a Catherine bauer edith elmer woods where they're like no we need cooperative housing and we need public housing it's that they're still middle class performers they still are, have their own bringing their own biases about the people that they're helping and their perspective but they are going above and beyond what the kind of the baseline national housing association movement was prescribing. No, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, another part we really haven't talked about was this, this fear of what's going on in Cincinnati. That is this door disorder. The fact that bosses, you know, control the city, uh, the idea that individuals <clears throat> really don't have this real sense of community, or this is, this is the eye from the, the reformers, at least, they they thought the lack of really community <clears throat> hurt the future of the city because you wanted a civic consciousness, you wanted an ability of people to understand that they're part of something larger. And the idea was that we need to create a, a sense of community so that by and the notion was by having like-minded people, people of the same race, people of the same maybe religion even, uh, you know, interacting because at least it would be the beginning because the, the, the curse of the slums was that these areas were, were areas where, you know, crime took place, prostitution, um, the whole notion of people were just barely surviving on their own. And, and there was this great desire to, to create a sense of some kind of a sense of community, which is where you sort of the new phase that is housing all of a sudden really stops. It seems to stop from the neediest trying to provide housing for the neediest to come up with a way of creating a larger plan to uh, create housing that is going to be healthy for the city as well as for the individual. And, and that, that I think 
that's a thing that was kind of mind-boggling because I kept just expecting when I was doing my original research that this is just kind of an evolution of things. But there seems to be a fairly significant change that takes place, um, you know, by the 19, uh, well, by the end of the 1920s, clearly, that there need to be new new ways of approaching housing issues. And they're not always to the benefit of the very poor, but there are efforts that, um, you know, the idea was, well, the, the very poor are not going to be able to survive. And so they have to, we'll have to just make sure they rely on charities and things like that. That is, but, but this other stuff was seen as with optimism that possibly by creating this new sense of civicness and this new kind of community, things would get better for the future. Yeah, I, th I think you, you can look at the, the kind of good government reform types. You know, there's always a seed of paternalism. And, oh, yeah. you know, certainly when they're teaching in the education, oh, we can clean the tenements if they just learn to keep a, a clean room. And, and I think, you know, later you, 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 you note a division between how they view the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Yeah. The undeserving poor, you write off. The deserving poor, if you just keep them in a nice unit where they can live like people, they can become civilized. Uh, and, you know, there, there's this ideology, the ideology of you need to avoid chaos. Things need to be, you know, homogeneous. I, I, I One blind spot, I can never help. You know, you mentioned again and again, integration is never considered. I would say if I were really someone who believes in the power of civilization, shouldn't you let the poor live with the rich? Won't that benefit them? But apparently that just, you know, the poor and minorities, that simply will not do. Uh, but you yeah. can do the next best thing. They can have their own homogeneous little, you know, unit. Uh, and actually just a, a bit of, you know, Cincinnati explaining. I don't know if it's clear when, it's very funny to me, just the filter down theory of, oh, we just need to take the pressure off of the basin. And the way that they were so excited about doing was Marymont. And for people who don't know Marymont, Marymont is not just like a nice, like it is a very snobby, rich, everything yeah. is built up like a Tudor style. They have a little quaint village green and everything. And the, the homes are, you know, it, it is one of the most luxurious suburbs in Cincinnati and it has the, the skeleton. It can never really be anything, but it's very funny to think, oh, this is going to, this is going to take the pressure off the poorest as there are functional reasons why the poorest can't afford much housing. And, yeah. you know, there's certainly, this isn't going to do a lot for them. Well, it was advertised as for working men, you know, I mean, that's one of the advertisements early on and you look around and you'd have to be a very rich working person <laughs> to get in there because you're right about that. But the idea was again, trying to create, environments that promote, you know, community. We'll probably talk about the Greenbelt projects later on when we get into yeah. the government. But, you know, I find that just a classic example. And, and the neighborhood plans that, you know, were associated, uh, have inter people interact with each other. Again, people who have sort of shared similarities. It's not, again, as you said, integration at all. But that was just... I've often wondered how people who call themselves progressives, you know, could embrace the race card, but they can at least with this notion of community, because what they're doing is they're having like, like minded people living together, you know, yeah. people from an agricultural background, you know, they, they might not have, you know, 
embraced eugenics ideas that blacks are inferior, but the idea is they're, you know, they're people from the rural areas coming into an urban environment and they have to learn how, you know, they have to learn how to survive in a city. And you, you, know, you need to have them interact with each other and things like that uh, in, in healthy ways. But There's a certain rhyme to it. It's not, it's not the eliminationism of eugenics, but high planning, the scientific, like the scientific mindset of there is a right way and a wrong way to live. And, you know, we have to do segregation. We always oh, hate it, but it, it's science yeah. says yeah. so or something. It's, yeah, I find that, it, that, that's what was really interesting to me is, is the, the, the discussion of like Clarence Perry and the regional plan association about the the neighborhood unit and a lot of it it actually reminded me of the kind of post 60s turn to small is beautiful and we need community control of resources and neighborhoods and stuff like that but without the kind of um a lot of that post 60s kind of rhetoric and um discourse was shorn of some of the homogeneity right if the, if the if the payons to we need these cohesive social units uh, in the 70s, or whatever, no progressive would say oh, we only want agricultural people or we only want white people or the, the ethnics or whatever to be there. But certainly below the surface, if, you know, existing hierarchies and existing spatial kind of uh, disparities existed, you're simply keeping that. So I just thought it was interesting that this was an era of high modernism and they're still talking about the necessity of this community, of this social unit, um, but it's done at, from a high level of the, assuming that there's some um, God tier planner sitting there and deciding this will be the this will be the um, Appalachian, the white Appalachian, and this will be the people from Alabama and this will be so on and so forth. It, it's interesting just how that community, uh, that small C community ideology is persistent even before that kind of that more neoliberal turn in the 70s. Now that's interesting. Uh, and you're right in terms of comparing it to sort of the 70s. But I think the assumption, at least of some of the reformers, was that in order for people to understand the need for interaction, in order to create an environment that people understand that they're part of something larger and that it's their, you know, they need to get, learn to get along with people. They need to come up uh, with sort of their sacrifice for the good of the larger community. The idea was let's start with it at a minor stage, basically, where, you know, the idea is this is not to isolate these people eventually, this is a way of showing them that they're part of something larger. They're not lost in this just mass of chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that there's at least some who write about this, you know, really do take this on talking about this as a way of introducing people, how to be good urbanites, how to, how to be good civic, you know, involved in civic things. And, um, it, it at least reaches towards like mobility at a metro scale. You you know they kind of instead of like maybe the small is beautiful, you stay rooted in your community forever. It's the idea that you probably will move through several neighborhoods and communities from poor to rich if you are you know living life the right mm -hmm. way. Which I feel yeah. is you know it, it certainly has has a a, a kind of uh, internal logic to it. The yeah. one thing that I'm just thinking about, I th this idea of like a bunch of disparate communities that are, but under a kind of a regional plan, so to speak, you know, this is a, a vision that planners have 
throughout the world. Um, and it's, it's succeeded in at different levels and, you know, uh, you know, Western Europe and, and elsewhere there, they've, they've actually done decent jobs at this. But the thing that I think that I, you know, looking at the book and as someone not from Cincinnati, the failure of um, in the, the 1920s of the kind of the, the funding and the financing for a rapid transit system, I feel like that looms large. Like you can imagine these kind of disconnected, these connected smaller units being connected by a rapid transit system. But that, that failure of the um, the property, um, the uh, the property tax um for um the property tax limitation at the state level from ohio that killed the the kind of financing plans for that rapid transit i feel like that kind of is a a counterfactual for what if this could could have succeeded in some level and just to underline a point you can listen to the previous cincinnati episode uh for more but the good government people the murray seasoned good uh charterites they hated the subway so much they hated the rapid transit system uh, because if nothing else, it spoke to the kind of tawdriness of the boss system. And I, I think you could talk maybe an anti-urbanist, you know, kind of, you know, high modernist automobile agenda. But it is interesting. Yeah, if if you did have a union of the good government people, but without the car brain to the same extent, what would that have looked like? It would be a very different kind of city. <laughs> but but that's, no, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting. That, uh I, I do wonder how much it licked the cookie. It's like, oh, we hate the subway because boss, it's Boss Cox's subway. You know, if they were able to own it, maybe they wouldn't have hated it so much. But it was it was a cursed project in a number of ways. Yeah. And it was going to have to face real challenges, too, just with the terrain of the city, it seems to me. But, uh... Yeah, I mean, you had to build the, the subway in a certain way to kind of climb out of the basin. Uh, you know, certainly you had to hug the, the Mill Creek and, uh, you know... Uh, but yeah, I think to get back to the kind of, you know, uh, where we were before, yeah, it's, you know, we're kind of nearing the end of the 20s, you know, there was certainly, we've, the depression has not yet hit, but they have not able to, to do much stuff yet, because they, they kind of, they, as you said before, they expected to see a natural de-slumming, they expected the West End to disappear and be replaced by industrial uh, usage, and the, the shock is, well, despite everyone's planning and best efforts, that just didn't happen. And people are starting to get frustrated. You could, to me, it's a little bit, I can understand the frustration by the West End residents, but it is, I, I find one thing that's so interesting is what is the motivation? Is it purely altruistic or is it kind of a, a metro level fear of crime? Why did... Like, why did the suburbs care so much about wiping away the West End? Uh, but for any, like, whether whether or not it is, you know, motivated by this or that, uh, this there is certainly an idea that we need to move ahead on it. And, and large-scale uh, slum clearance is, you know, now at, at the fore. Slums represented disorder, and middle class did not want disorder in their cities, uh, it seems to me. Uh, and I think... Just this, you know, that area represented what a lot of Cincinnatians thought was the real threat to the city, and in some ways, and that they it couldn't be uh, controlled in one way or another, then the city was going to be in trouble. And of course, it got worse instead of better. I mean, that's the thing that the housing, and I still remember when one of the slum landowners 
who ended up having a park named after him across the, the river, got in all sorts of trouble. He said, look, I'm providing, I'm providing housing for these people. There's no one, no one else that's providing housing for them. And it, you know, it was sort of a, an interesting point of view, but uh, the idea was we have to, we have to do something to eliminate this area. That's such a, you know, a blight on the city and, doesn't work and it can't work. And, you know, the whole, the whole notion of the filter down theory isn't, isn't coming, coming forward in any positive way at all. So you can see it. It's like kind of, it's a cousin of just civic boosterism in general. If we don't clear our slums, we're going to be lapped by other cities that do clear their slums. But it's also just, I mean, it, this is all happening during a period of prosperity, you know, yeah. after, I mean, after the war, things are going quite well. And, you know, if there's ever going to be a filter down time, this seems to be it. But again, the you know, it just never happened. And I have I have to admit, I'm not a fan of uh, realtors at all. <laughs> but because they've, you know, historically they've done everything they could to sort of make it impossible for. Uh, adequate housing for poor people. And, yeah, you can uh, look at, at people in this who seem to have blind spots, but you can kind of see where they ended up with the blind spot. But yeah, realtors, every time they come up, they're just 100% on the side of evil. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, I know better than that. <laughs> there's no ambiguity. Uh, but no, it's, uh, but yeah, it's it's in the high times of you know, the, the booming 20s, they couldn't do much. And yeah, certainly the depression uh, caused you know other other problems. But at that point, you, you did see for the first time uh, government uh, ability to step in. And I, I think this is, you know, uh, you know uh, one thing that's very interesting is this is where a big question comes up about land acquisition, uh, a big land acquisition whether you do infill, infill turnover versus vacant land, uh, you know, building up, uh, and you know, how do you balance this? And the numbers, at least at different points, it's it's completely stark. Uh, as I think at one point, the cost of acquiring slum tenement areas was two dollars a square foot for vacant land, which was basically the competing projects. It was two cents a square foot. You know, a hundred times cheaper. And when the New Deal programs are being spun up in the 30s, they actually had caps on land acquisition. So even though the city wanted to build uh, in the basin, that was at least the ideological kind of purpose. And they had the West End residents largely on board, the leadership at least. Uh, mm. They just could not do it because land acquisition was not possible, which is, you know, I, I think... Uh, yeah, perhaps not surprising if you think about it, but uh, it certainly seemed to, to thwart everyone's actions. No, I think you're right. And what makes that even more complicated is the notion of what is good housing. That is the idea, you know, you when you build public housing in the basin, you still want to have a park nearby. You want to have uh, recreation you know, rooms. You want to create a community. And in order to do that, you need more land. And so that that creates a real challenge too. You're not only just buying the, the narrow lots for, you know, adequate housing, but you're trying to create this model that, you know, it's, it's, it's the miniature model of what Merrimont's supposed to be. That's tongue in cheek, but the yeah. idea of providing a center for people to interact. I mean, I was just amazed at some of the, 
you know, the idea is they, they had community newspapers, but they also had, you know, all sorts of clubs that there. A, they, a, a smoker's day. club. I've never really heard yeah, that. Just right, people right. can and, smoke and pipes together. At least for one of them, they had a stores that were very nearby that would, you know, can people could go to and interact at this time. I mean, there, but, but the, the big issue is if you're going on with this community kind of idea, you're going to need more land and land is something it's just impossible to get when, for the price that, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, think, my I notion- think one of the earliest projects was really just, uh, just to acquire West end land and turn it into a park, a green space. That's right. And, yes. and like, if you think about that, that's turning a huge revenue creator into something which, cannot create revenue or it should not create revenue and like clearly like you need a lot of money to do that if you're doing that and i I suppose they tried and i think that became so difficult to do they okay what if you just create a kind of mixed use uh you know you know buildings but then also green space and then you can kind of you know make it all work as one project the one thing that i i'm just the idea of more of a the difference between the the redevelopment in the West End and more kind of garden apartments in the suburbs or on greenfield land is the idea of having mixed uses or even uses nearby of having stores and uh, park space and pedestrian places is that at that time it was completely going against the the larger demand cultural planning trends of separating uses of automobility of um high modernism and everything else so you can imagine a integrated community in the west end that has split like the the modern design you would associate with kind of mixed use development urban mixed use development today but at that time the idea of having park space and having mixed uses in the same building and all the in pedestrian separated pedestrian and bike facilities and all these kind of things the, the the forces were just going completely the other direction. And so with the challenges, with the headwinds of high land prices and starting spinning up this, you know, local public housing authority, you are already struggling just from the get go. And then you're going to try to impose a vision that is antithetical to what every planner is telling you. You need to separate these uses. You need to have parking. You need to to build it in in this, you need to be set back from the street and all these type of in, um, received wisdoms from planners and architects and um, underwriters and appraisers and whatnot. But you can maybe see the synthesis with the green belt, the, you know, the green belt cities that you know became really the the, the most attractive new program in the eyes of uh, the New Deal, uh, you know, uh, folks, Red, Rexford Tugwell and others. And you know, Cincinnati uh, had one of the three of them, which is Green Hills. And I'll just say offhand, growing up, I I never thought Green Hills was an interesting suburb. It always seemed like, oh, it's just one of the suburbs. I suppose if I looked at it from an airplane, I'd perhaps think it looks a little bit more interesting. But it was a very normal suburb to me, but it was extremely ambitious at the time. So I want you to speak on that a bit. Right. In fact, I became the hero when I gave a talk at at Green Hills because they always sort of thought that they were being dismissed as a, a New Deal kind of place for poor people. And I said, no, you were an experiment. You know, this was a real experiment in community building, basically. And this is a classic example of trying to get people together. That is, if, if you've ever driven around Green Hills, you see a lot of the housing, the early housing, the exits were not to the street. The exits were to the yard. 
to the the the, the, the inner would, the inner shared yard. It's a very yeah, interesting, yeah. People would have to go, you know, meet, see face to face, and then these kind of issues. And you know, they had community buildings. They had well, their school became the kind of the center of the the city, but they also had consumer run co-ops. Uh, co-ops, yeah, there we. That you know, the whole notion was to create an interaction within that that community. And this really was an experiment. And again, it, it is social engineering. I mean, that's a lot of the stuff that's done during this period by, by housers, you know, the idea it was social and you had to, you had to follow certain rules. You know, there was a big conflict about pets and uh, when wash, you know, when dro- washing can put be put out on the line and things like that. But it really was, you know, the, the, the idea was to create this area that was not, urban it was metropolitan the idea that you know by this time the idea with planning was not just for the city itself but as the organic city expands outside city limits you still have to be aware of the needs and and so you know you have farmland that was supposed to be planned you know originally you were going to have crops raised in the farmland and and, and the uh, in green hills and then sold into the city and there's going to be this interaction that was taking place but again it's, it was going to achieve uh, the marx and engels dream of the abolition of the antithesis of, of town and country you know yeah that yeah. i have yeah, <laughs> that is right <laughs> that's all i can think about reading yeah. reading those passages one thing that i i really was interested in when they talk about more of the kind of the green belt or the green field type of community planning is that some of the descriptions of the you know obviously there are some some of these that are more detached or attached but even when they have the apartment the small apartments or multifamily housing the way that in that those either either the low uh the dividend projects or the low uh, low interest return projects or whatever or the pwa housing is the emphasis on garden apartments three and four story walk-ups and um and cross ventilation and access to air and light. One of the interesting things to me is those three and four story walk-ups in those green belts is that they, um, you know, they represent something that Lawrence V. would have wanted, right, in terms of sanitary housing, but obviously they're not detached family, but they're still striving to have the quality of life, the privacy, the amenities uh, in a suburban style. And I think it's, it's, you know, people talk about, um, you know, 1937 Housing Act, 1949 Housing Act, public housing, and the popular image is towers in the park and these kind of um, crowded, um, uh, again, they're not tenement buildings, but still crowded buildings that are probably maintained. But that vision of the early 30s, mid 30s, PWA housing is a very familiar, seems very livable kind of suburban multifamily housing that, that is very, has a very, seems like it has a high quality of life for a lot of people. And it seems just kind of the descriptions. It's it's the places that they were attractive. Um, it Maybe the the private uh, developers and realtors were not going to build three and four story walk ups, but they fit in naturally with that environment. And I think it's something that we we it's a big myth on on kind of American planning and development that we couldn't have more of that type of model. And instead, we we kind of squeezed everything. It's either you're a detached single family house or you're a very large apartment building that doesn't have access to good airflow or light or and, and large just as a, family size units. 
And just as a side note, I think a, a, a geographic lesson for the non-Cincinnatians, too. It's very interesting. Gr- Green Hills, at the time, the kind of actual commute shed of Cincinnati, it went as far north as like Glendale, which was pretty far on the streetcar. And Green Hills was all basically north of that and out to the west. It was c- completely isolated. I think it didn't have uh, any transit for the first, uh, you know, several, you know, decade or more of its of its existence. Um, and over time, it yeah, as you said, there was kind of, you know, what they, people call like a, you know, kind of a, a mixed middle kind of apartment level. In, in time, that kind of even was scaled back. It became much more of a normal suburb. And, you know, yeah. I don't know if there's realtors. I kind of assume it's realtors. But, uh, well, World War II did that, too. That was... Yeah. That had the, I thought there was I thought there was a bus that would go into Cincinnati, but it may not have. If it, if it was, it was the, very very minimal. I, I I there perhaps one a day. I'm not sure. But that you know the green belt is always interesting because it was an attempt to identify Green Hills as a as a place, a specific place, as a part of just you know another suburb next to next you know next next to you. And the idea was to, again, create this identity for the community that let the people know that they were part of something kind of different and unique and that they needed to act as a community as, op- as opposed, you know, looking out for the good of the whole community as opposed to just being someone shelved in, into the, you know, the, the traditional sort of suburban idea that you're, you know, you're going to be having a boring life because the you know, the excitement is just when the mailman comes or when the milkman comes and stuff like that. It, it, you know, it, it was it, it was a culmination in some ways of the the whole notion of community development is is going to have a major impact on your outlook on life, and whether or not that's true or not, that was kind of I think the assumptions behind that. Yeah, and I think there's, there's two dynamics. It's a certain you know bit of creating a place, and then exterminating a place. You know, the city. This is the whole vacant land controversy. They wanted to bulldoze the West End, but they also yeah. wanted to create as much kind of new, uh, you know, model living as possible. And at, at at some senses, these are at ends. One because there's a certain pool of money, and two for various reasons, uh, foremost, explicit segregation. When you're building a new vacant site, uh, the poorest people in the West End are not going to live there. They they literally can't, uh, not only because income limits, uh, both minimum and maximum, uh, but because it is whites only, uh, certainly these few. Uh, and actually, uh, these first two developments, uh, they were vacant, uh, English Woods and uh, Winton Terrace, you mentioned early that you like walk through English Woods as a student, uh, well, as it is. Yeah, my bus my bus stopped right by picked up people from there because I I, I lived over there and I I was just kind of very impressed with the the community. Uh, what's what's interesting is both of those places like they created a new area, and for whatever reason, in the long term, they really failed to become the core of anything and in fact English Woods in the mid-aughts they completely defunded and did away with all of the existing public housing stock and now the population went from 5,000 down to a couple hundred it's it's and you know Winton Terrace is a like the entire neighborhood's a very sparse 
area, which is just kind of, I, I suppose you can say this is the flip side of cheap land, you know, is necessarily, it started out cheap for a reason, you know, it isn't in the middle of things. And yeah. it, it is it is interesting in the long term how it kind of failed to, I guess, build connecting muscle with the rest of the yeah. city so much. And they still had a bus going downtown, I remember. So. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just struck me, it, it did not it did not strike me as the typical public housing. The, the Prudigo type style. It was, it was cleaner yeah. than I had seen, and the architecture was at least a little better than architecture of a lot of a lot of places. So, but that actually got me thinking about uh, about the whole one of the issues of the whole issue of public housing and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, uh, I, I suppose it's it's certainly in time it went from certainly its middle class roots to uh, the more traditionally you know heavily means tested you know poor persons housing program in time and at the same time it became you know kind of rapidly defunded and and set up for failure but uh no i think it's also well one more thing i just i think is a political fight which i think is fascinating is the fight over uh basically two things the housing authority whether it would pay taxes back to the city uh versus service fees which are a you know kind of interesting workaround you know similar in a different phrase and then it said like whether these authorities would be tax exempt you know whether their incomes which you know was one of the ways they generate uh you know subsidy it it goes to the big question how do you create how do you create uh cheaper housing for people who need it to be cheaper and you need some sort of subsidy. The feds were giving kind of an implicit subsidy as far as you know, favorable financing, but they were also looking to create subsidies in the form of, you know, uh, the authority being tax advantaged uh, and or, you know, land subsidy when possible. But uh, it's it goes back to the question from the beginning. How do you create cheap housing uh, in right. the middle of a city? It's hard. You know, there's no shortcuts. And by then, public housing was so controversial that it was just, you know, it never had a chance with in terms of the political environment of Cincinnati, I think, or, or other other communities. Um, yeah, I, mean, I find it really interesting. A lot of my recent scholarship has been on on southwestern cities, and you know, Dallas, which is viewed as being very conservative in a lot of ways, had had its business community wanted to have public housing, but the the politics, the general politics, was very opposed to it, and you know it. They eventually did develop some horrible projects, uh, but it was, it, was, it was interesting to me to, to read because obviously the Better Homes League, um, I, and I'm not sure that it's not clear whether there's like a consensus or unanimity there, but they recognize the need for lower cost housing for poor and uh, lower middle households, and obviously the the dividend housing. And then the public housing, the Cincinnati Public Housing Authority, were part of that strategy, and it seems like they 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 had the energy for the the minimum fight, they had the energy for the planning fight, and then they just seem to have kind of lost a little bit of the I don't know generationally or, or whatever it was. They got some. They couldn't get the PDA PWA project really off the ground, and. And then finally, the 37 Housing Act comes in, and then at that point, it just became really politicized. And then the war came in, and all those the the actual public housing projects that were funded got swooped up by as defense housing. And then 
after the war there will get started again but now there's this red scare backlash and they the mark i don't know if you noticed but there's a article 34 copy oh that yeah barely yeah. barely was defeated um that would have put a made every single public housing project subject to an electoral vote and so it just they couldn't catch a break like there if they had ever been able to you know just stay under one program if the bhl had kind of stayed together as a strong coalition of obviously business and middle class interests they could have seen and then maybe with a, a union support or labor support or whatever you can imagine them maybe doing a little bit better but they just kept getting interrupted throughout that process by different forces it was hurdle I mean, after hurdle after hurdle i think the great depression the one thing i found is interesting is this the county originally was it had kind of a modest program for helping out people who needed relief and it went bankrupt just because there was too many people needed relief and the city took it over and they still yeah. basically they it was a modest pro it didn't really help out enough for people but it was still you know more than they could more than they counted on for what they consider to be a, an alms program for a few needy folks. But yeah, as you said, yeah, it's just, uh, it's like people fought very hard for project after project. And what's interesting to me is it seems like the numbers never came close to adding up. Like, as you said before, there was 120,000 people in the basin, you know, uh, back in the twenties and more and more people moved. It grew in population uh, as time went on, as the Great Migration took place. And they were looking to bulldoze the tenements and only having room for a fraction of who came in at that. And it seemed at a certain point they, you know, the the the, the will to make the numbers add up. Certainly, it never came together. And I think maybe the energy just kind of was never there but uh it is interesting to say like yeah like how could have this ever worked and i guess this one related question before i stop talking is uh is you know how much of the housing the tenement poor was because that was really their goal and how much was it to give permission to do the slum clearance <laughs> just 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 kind of like things and things that occur to me yeah well I mean, many of the poor were poor, <laughs> you yeah. know, and that they weren't going to get, they weren't going to get better housing. Things were going against them. And, you know, I mean, what happens, you know, after the war, you think, okay, you know, there was a lot of housing built during the war, but Congress didn't allow a lot of that to be permanent housing. And, you know, what are you doing you know, at that time? Well, you're now starting to worry about downtown and all of a sudden downtown becomes a very different focus you don't talk about the city as a whole anymore. You talk about, you know, how are we going to deal with the suburbs? And so the suburbs are starting to grow outward and we have to come make downtown attractive. And all of a sudden, that new notion is we can we can sound like we're doing great things for people in slums. We clear the slums for and build nice buildings downtown to make it attractive. But it's it's no longer part of a larger scheme, uh, you know, in, in terms of the larger plans that we associate with housing are kind of gone by then and uh at least the the comprehensive plans and i think that that begin that marks the beginning of a different era and i think that that's a that's an issue that we can talk about at another time i suppose but um, yeah it's, it's it's depressing because you know i don't know if 
uh, if, you, if you're familiar with John Tiford's The Metropolitan Re uh, Revolution, which is just talking about the fragmentation of metropolitan America and stuff. And of course, he ultimately spins it with a positive idea. He says, well, it's just giving Americans more choices and opportunities to live where they want to with, with without necessarily- Is tie about sorting? Is that the word? Oh yeah, TIPO, yeah. I believe. TIPO, sorry. But but anyways, you know, we all of a sudden we have this new mentality that it's we're losing the sense of civicness and what's good for the city is good for us or what's good for the metropolitan region is really good for us. And that's, you know, that's shown up in all sorts of ways, it seems to me, including some of our new experiments in housing and things like that. It's yeah. In the, in the last part, part four, you talk about the turn again back from community to individual choices. It's basically yeah. the consumer as the endpoint. And what's interesting is I feel like some parts of it I can see as good. You saw you know, part of it, instead of having individual communities, you look to have uh, integration. What if we build public housing into like a bunch of existing communities, which honestly, uh, yes, please. Uh, and this is really, as, as Dirk was saying earlier, the Article 34 analog, that's what triggered it. The realtors, the local segregationist NIMBYs, they hated the fact uh, that there would be minorities living near them. It, this and, is the, the uh, scattered site approach, right? Where absolutely. Of, yeah. Rather than concentrating into large community-sized developments that oftentimes were isolated from the rest of the met metropolis is where you're going to put individual discrete public or low-income housing yeah and, and i think that that i mean that's a that's an approach that a lot of communities did. and cincinnati is ahead of its time here right like they've always been a few decades ahead yeah. of these kind of i mean scatter site didn't really become big in the rest of the country until the 70s and the 80s but they're in 19 late 40s and the 50s talking about scattered site and trying to fit them in on the the vest pocket sites and whatnot and i think that, that's interesting and at that time i guess just to kind of pull back on um robert's dislike of the realtors um but the realtors um before the you know in that last like potential hurrah they were combating the public housing authority and and better homes league and, and folks to say that they didn't they thought of the the public housing program as stealing the um lower middle income renters and potential home buyers from them yeah and so that having a cost rental public housing program pwa housing was was stealing from the market in some sense um and so th th this idea that um having a more unitary focused public housing system rather than one that's heavily kind of um means tested or or bifurcated is that the, the realtors thought that was much more frightening the idea of kind of a universalist program, then we'll have your means tested segregated program over here in 10 that's concentrated in like 10% of the metropolis. But the, the again, the I always think about the counterfactual alternative is the alternative is scattered site, 10 unit buildings of that are cost rentals and some very low income or whatever all across the metropolis. It's really integrating the place. And that's the thing that they were absolutely terrified of. Right, because that's going to one compete with them, but also in their eyes, lower land values and break up the patterns of both economic and racial segregation in some ways. And I don't know if if the realtors are are angry at you and mad at you, it's probably a good the sign that you're on the right track from a policy perspective. <laughs> 
I gotta say that 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 initiative that failed based to basically you know, put a lid on public housing. It is such a dismal kind of dichotomy on both sides because on one side it's the people trying to stop public housing, where the explicitly racist realtors and nimbys who are just having petitions with the N word on it, which is just like there is nothing more evil than that. But the other side, the people who are who are uh, saying we need this, their biggest. Their their biggest thing to fight for it is we oh we need this because we need to bulldoze the West End for highways and then just kind of you know and just and just bulldoze the rest of these these tenements which you know, even after the highways they bulldozed so many more just for industrial sites and uh, I mean the the, the compl- like what they did at the West End is is a massacre so I I like those are two awful sides but. Uh, they, they got the highways in the end, and but they didn't get a lot of the public housing standard sites. You know, it was kind of a lose-lose in my book. I think it's important to remember that a lot of public housing supporters, you know, maybe failed to achieve their goals. Uh, but at the same time, you can't question their. I mean, one of the, one of the things that got me into this whole project was the idea of uh, there are a lot of good, decent people wanting to help the city. You know, it just wasn't this notion of this is just a way of getting rid of the blacks and, and uh, you know, by, well, the kind of the Hirsch thesis that everything was done in kind of in a conspiracy to get rid of folks. And I think that there are legitimate people who saw this as an issue because and they understood that, you know, bad housing for minorities, bad housing for Germans who came in were not that was not going to help the city at all unless something was done to address the issue. And. That I'm very sympathetic. Once we get to the kind of clearing things for downtowns, that's when I kind of lose my patience because there never was a real good solution of how we're going to <clears throat> how we're going to fix this. Yeah, in terms of population issues and uh, it do, it does feel that that you know the highways were just the thing. It's like if it wasn't for the highways, maybe it wouldn't have happened at that scale. But it just that that really brought a fever of just like, oh, you know, like we tried for decades. Can we just get this over with? I don't know. It, it feels so much like there is just a, a real giving up is like cuz to me it's a, it's a, it's of a mystery kind of reading this book because the the massacre of the west end is you know something people talk about all the time it's like how did this happen and for like in this book you see bits and pieces bits and pieces bits and pieces and then at the end it's like okay then they just wiped it all off and it's like wow that that happened real quick you know it went from 0 to 60 real real quick and it, it seems like in the idea, like it's almost a different book uh, to, to kind of get into that part. And there is, that's you contributed right. to Race in the City, is you have a chapter in that, but that's a, another great book in the series. At any point in time, it's a question what would you have advocated for if you were in that time? Because it's, as you, like, as Robert was saying, these people were not all evil and stupid. But they had in their time and place, they advocated for things that seemed to not really produce what they wanted to in the long term. And I guess the question, like, if you had their ear or if you were in the room, like, how could you have steered this different or how could what could you have done differently? Well, I would have started lobbying like crazy for more money. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, public housing suffered tremendously from the bureaucracy, the red tape stuff, just to get, you know, Units that were planned, you know, years ahead. And, you know, Cincinnati was very good about planning 
having having plans to give to the government and the government just took so long to deal with this stuff. And I mean, that's not going to solve any of the problems and I'm probably going to avoid answering that because. <laughs> well, how do you solve racism? I'll give you 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess my question is um, like you talk about in the last chapter, it's kind of a shift from this. We, you know, we start with the BHL community vision and then it shifts to the let's we need to save downtown. We need to save downtown for the benefit of the whole region and bring the suburbs back in, connect it. And then we get to the 50s and and it's really it's a managed retreat back into we need to this is like the the lifeboat for public housing becomes this lifeboat for poor minorities. Um and it, it is again. Cincinnati is ahead of the rest of the country. We were retreating back into this kind of neoliberalized, atomized kind of view of public services. Um, and so you, you had mentioned kind of as you talk about like the relationship of of the suburbs to the city and the the, the metropolis. And I do wonder, like, given the politics of, between Cincinnati and its suburbs, was there ever an opportunity for unified governance in the same way that Indianapolis or other places have where you could have obviously, you know, left liberals have issues had issues with that at the time, but for fast forward to 2023, Indianapolis and most of its suburbs are democratic strongholds now. Right. And they, they have a, they have a, a, a strong liberal preference. And so I'm wondering, the bad parts of Hamilton County are bad, but boy, Claremont County and Butler, you know, there's some, there's some stuff there. Right. And maybe, I, maybe I'm off base here, but no, no, was no. there an no, alternative right. path in terms of a, a metropolis that could have cohered at that point? Or was it, were the forces just too strong going in the other direction? Well, that's a very good question. And I, you know, the, the battle cry in a lot of cities was metropolitan planning uh, you know, going beyond the city limits and doing that, but that was fought almost in every place where it, you know. I mean, the the, the whole planning scheme uh, was to create more order and to link the communities together better than they were. But uh, that was not going to happen, at least down here in in the Southwest. That never was going to happen in, in a lot of ways. So. One thing you wrote about towards the end is like they were trying everything. Nothing really scaled. And the first thing that really scaled was the kind of large scale suburban development of Forest Park. And Zane right. Miller wrote an entire book about that called right, Suburb. Exactly. And yeah. Forest Park, to my mind, the most boring of all the boring suburbs. But boy, like it that is basically that is what stuck to the wall. Like it is. And I think once that happened, you kind of that is the entire next 40 years of Cincinnati is just, you know, rubber stamp of Forest Park after Forest Park, at least in my mind, that seems to be what I saw, which is, you know, that that's well, a growth was, machine that worked. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was segregated. I mean, it integrated too. So, which, you know, which was ultimately, you know, black, one of the things that really impressed me about Forest Park was the, the African-American population there for a while. Yeah, it certainly gave a more it's a it's a pure middle class you know vision as opposed to you said earlier when you had the integrated suburbs you got kind of what happens if you are bulldozing the black communities but they cannot move to the white suburbs eventually the places where they had a foothold uh, it's it gets completely taken over the age of high blockbusting you know Avondale uh, you know turns into you know, basically the black enclave and then, you know, race riots uh, a few decades later. And, but yeah, I think, you know, integration came, 
came eventually and I, I think that became the, the you know that became more of a model of kind of the the low density big 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 blob of suburbs everywhere but which have its own issues but you know certainly not this the same dynamics of the segregated uh city i mean that's what i find ironic that cities were supposed to be doing downtown to save them and ultimately what they do is they scatter a black population you know that creates white flight yeah and ultimately damns the city in a lot of ways because of the population decrease and uh and i think that that happened in so many cities that it's it's just kind of incredible to think about yeah no i i think uh there is a separate book uh, that zane miller wrote about kind of the history over the rhine which yes. you know could have been bulldozed just as easily but almost was kind of there's a whole political history of why it wasn't but you right. know it it has its own history of it completely turned over to black population. And now it's being a return from the white, you know, a return to gentrification and basically a displacement of its community. Right. And, and I mean, that is like the, the that is the, the long term of kind of the revitalization of the downtown. Well, in 1948, you can look in the public plan and, you know, the way that Bettman's kind of idea of revitalizing downtown was basically bulldoze everything, parking lots, parking lots, parking structures. It was a little tiny little downtown and then a huge sea of parking, which predated, you know, with Phoenix and everything else doing it. But uh I mean, I think that is the kind of question. The thing that they did not envision, I'd say, were two, the long-term trends towards kind of gentrification and a return of whites to downtown and, you know, hipster <laughs> hipster neighborhoods. But the other right. thing being, this is more the Jane Jacobs-style unplanning, and this is I, I, what more or less happened in Mount Adams. Mount Adams, you know, it, in, it was thought at the time, old neighborhoods decay, collapse, they need to be wiped out and grown again and instead mount adams had more of an organic revitalization in the 1950s through kind of a bohemian atmosphere uh and you know that's that was unpredicted at the time but i I think that is that seems to be the trajectory we've been living through as well is you know the middle of the cities have ceased to be irrelevant uh but you know how do we deal with these forces right yeah but that's a little out of scope, certainly. I just, I just, you no, know. but that's, uh, but that's still you know, important. It's, it's nice to talk to somebody who knows Cincinnati. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's nice to talk about Cincinnati in any context. Uh, well, but that's, that's right. Now, I, 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 it's, I do think it's an interesting. It is an interesting city. It, it the, the end of the Carl Condit book about transportation in the city is just he's still in the 1970s. He's writing this of he still sees the best plan is returning the 1920s rapid transit connectedness to the center of the city. I think he he was always so bearish about kind of the decentralization and the, the transportation methods. Uh, and I, I think having that unity of ho- like housing, planning, transportation I Cincinnati's still figuring that out. We're we're dealing with the Brent Spence Bridge turnover right now, and it's a mess. Uh, okay. But it's it's an open question. I, I don't. This is not this is not a closed book on history. Is in my point. Right. That's that's exactly right. Yeah, I think we we ran a, a you know a bit long here, but uh, yeah, I, I think just in short, any other closing thoughts before uh, we wrap up here? But I, I've uh, in any case, I've I've really enjoyed uh, covering this. Material. Yeah. No. I, I enjoyed this. I was worried just because this is a long book ago, and I 
it was fun. I, it forced me to reread the stuff that I'd written a long time ago, and I really, in, you know, I thought, okay, this is okay, and uh, made me feel feel good. But uh, it was nice to get away from the Southwest, which <laughs> I get tired writing about now. So yeah, well, okay. I mean, so just very briefly, uh, compare and contrast. You know, the Sun Belt cities or whatever. Like, what? Like, is there a disparity that they need to be kind of approached in different ways or are they all or do they have the same dna and and the same dynamics at a core i think my experience and basically i focus on dallas and houston and phoenix i guess and some somewhere else but i was amazed at how similar they were in a lot of ways uh you know dallas had very quote, I I hate to use this term in Dallas in the same sentence, but it was fairly progressive in terms of what, you know, they they embraced planning quite early and they they did a lot of things like Cincinnati. They cleaned up their government pretty quickly and 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 had had I think a strong in some ways they were very strong and not that different from they Cincinnati was their model, by the way. Cincinnati Mm, Cincinnati was everybody's model in the Southwest. They would. It's amazing the number of people they invited down. Bettman would come down. Um, I don't know if Sego came down or not, but he he he, he was a model for them. I mean, they, they really turned That's to not Cincinnati. Surprising, yeah. And it just shocked me basically yeah. when I first got down here. But it, they wanted you know they wanted professionals who knew what they were doing and who who had visions that they could go along with. But you know the. The downtown community, which has been accused of a lot of things, did they really did want to push urban development. They wanted to make Dallas attractive, and they were they understood the problems that they were dealing with. And so there's a lot of similarities. I, I did this in partly in response to some of the literature talking about the sort of the regionalness of, you know, this is a different world. And, and you know, they're all going to the same housing conferences and planning conferences. They're still there's a network of, of professionals who are, you know, well in touch with each other. And as a result, it, you know, Bartholomew did the Dallas plan. Bartholomew was, you know, uh, Harlan Bartholomew was doing stuff in Cincinnati at different times. And it's, you know, I found more similarities than I ever would have expected. Now the, there's more of an overt racism that really created problems, I think in Dallas for achieving. Uh, And there were state laws that, you know, killed, tried to kill public housing. You had to have votes on public housing, urban renewal. You had to have votes by population, stuff like that. But, but in terms of, they, they were a lot more similar than I thought other people had talked about. And uh, as a result, the differences were not as radical as I thought they would be. Interesting. Uh, I think you look at one city, you learn a lot about every city, Uh, but I think with that, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap things off. Uh, thanks uh, so much for uh, being here today. Thank you. This was this was fun for me too. So it's <laughs> great. Good. We have been talking to Robert Fairbanks about the book "Making Better Citizens: Housing Reform and the Community Development Strategy in Cincinnati, 1890 to 1960." You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of this radio program at the website cthecat.org. This is a presentation of KCSU Stanford 